Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Um, it is November the 16th, the morning in a chilly San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Things are beginning to come together with this show. I do so many of the shows. I guess the coming together, the synthesis, which uh, we're always looking for from Hegel onwards, are kind of inevitable. Yesterday, um, I spoke to the classical historian, the great professor of Greek studies, Paul Cartledge, on Thebes and what we owe the Athenians in political existential philosophical terms and i also spoke to a very interesting canadian writer kamal al salaili uh, he has a, a new book out return while we go back to where we come from uh, this issue of return of course is a perpetual theme in our book we seem to alternate between returning to hobbes's version of the state and his way of legitimizing civil society, modern society, best articulated, of course, in Leviathan, which my old friend David Runciman, who's been on the show several times, believe is the, the core book in modern philosophy. And the reverse of Hobbes, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Swiss-French philosopher and rebel whose book, uh, Second Discourse, is the kind of reverse, I guess, of, of Hobbes's notion of the state. Um, Rousseau is deeply nostalgic for a period before Hobbes's state. Um, but there is a third way, or at least I always thought it was a, you either had to go with Hobbes or with Rousseau. But there's a third way that's opened up, and it's articulated in a fascinating new book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, uh, by the Sadly, recently departed David Graeber, an uh, English anthropologist, um, David uh, Wengro. Um, this book, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get Graeber because we couldn't bring him back from the dead, and I couldn't get uh, Wengro, but I got the next best thing to Graeber, um, which is um, my old friend, uh, Bill... Durezowitz. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to screw that up. That's one. all right. Uh, but anyway, uh, Bill Derezowitz is um, with us. He has uh, he reviewed the book um, in the Atlantic. I was saying to him before, I'm surprised the Atlantic uh, allows someone as politically incorrect as Bill Derezowitz to write for them, which I guess reflects well on them. Um, Bill wrote a marvelous review of the dawn of everything, which. Um, describes the the book as a, a brilliant new account and, and and the piece in the atlantic which is as a central reading i think as the uh, the graeber wengro book begins with an anecdote bill about when you and graeber were both junior professors at yale tell me about that uh, anecdote which uh, warmed you up to, to graeber yeah right i was doing a project on community and i just wanted to to hear what anthropology was thinking about community these days so I pretty much chose a, uh, I had just gotten there. I didn't know anybody in the anthropology department. I, I just picked out someone 
What the fuck are you in literature? Yeah, right. I was in English lit, right. Uh, I picked out someone, not, not at random, but I picked the youngest guy in the department because I knew enough about academia already from having done a PhD to know that a senior person probably wouldn't be receptive to me reaching out. And this youngest person in the department happened to be a guy named David Graeber, who I had never heard of, and I don't think anybody had ever heard of. I think he was hired the same year as me in 98. We, we sit down to have lunch in uh, one of the cafeterias, and within a couple of minutes, I realized, like, this guy's a genius. I, I mean, I knew some really, really smart people. This was a different order. This was someone whose mind was, I know it sort of sounds like a cliche, but his mind was on a higher plane. It was just moving in different dimensions and directions than uh, anyone I had encountered. And I honestly don't remember anything else about that lunch. I ended up abandoning the project. But Graeber started to show up uh, more and more prominently as this great public intellectual of the left. Uh, it turns out that Yale didn't uh, tenure him or even promote him pro to, to associate before tenure. Surprise, surprise, right? You know, I'm, I, I'm still naive about this. I mean, there, the, you know, Yale claimed that he wasn't collegial, but I, I think, you know, I mean, that, that can just be a way, that can um, be a way of covering whatever rationale you want. And it was generally believed that it's because his politics were really outspoken and really far to the left. He described himself as an anarchist, which not a lot of people do. And he didn't mean anarchy, he didn't mean smashing windows. He meant exactly, he meant anarchism. A philosophy that uh, says... He's a, he's a Jewish anarchist. I mean, uh, I looked it up on Wikipedia, which is, of course, the source of all truth. Uh, and there's a there's a, a, um, a secular Jewish anarchism, which includes Emma Goldman, uh, uh, David Graeber, and Noam Chomsky, actually. Chomsky's daughter is going to be... Aviva Chomsky is going to be on the show later. What does this tradition, Bill, mean of secular Jewish anarchism, which, of course, was they, they brought from... Eastern Europe, particularly Russia, in the late 19th century. You know, I hadn't been aware of that connection. So I'm thinking about this for the first time. I mean, obviously, there was a strong strain of leftist thinking of all varieties among Jews, both in the... And, and, and it's best articulated, of course, by Emma Golden. Uh, in the United States, you mean? Right. Yeah, but of course, I mean, in Europe, too. Marx, for example. So... So it was, it was anything but an anarchist who hated the anarchists. Yes, but what I'm saying is, so first of all, I think we have to, I think, I think it's useful to place this, it's, it's appropriate to place this, I think, in the context of Jewish leftism in general, and leftism is a very broad spectrum. And I think Jewish leftism probably derives from the Jewish social justice tradition and the fact of Jewish oppression over, you know, 17 centuries of life under Christianity. But when you talk about anarchism, so I'm really just kind of off the top of my head here, but anarchism doesn't mean there's no structure or no laws. It means um, horizontal, small-scale, non-hierarchical political organization, which sounds to me like Jewish life in the shtetl in Eastern Europe. I mean, maybe yeah. it comes from that, Jewish communal life. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so this- Oh, and, and uh, wait, one, one more thing that I didn't put in the, yeah. in the review that you may not know about Graeber is that he, like actually a couple of friends of mine from left-wing Jewish youth movement, 
grew up in a, an enormous um, housing co-op uh, in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood. Yeah, I that read had been that. started by the Garment Workers Union. Who so, his parents were involved with. I think his mother was an activist within the Garments Union. That makes sense. So, but the point is he grew up in, again, he grew up in that kind of milieu translated to sort of the terms of, you know, 20th century New York, cooperative, largely Jewish environment. So let's go back, uh, Bill, to this book, The Dawn of Everything. Um, yeah. It offers a, an alternative to the, the Hobbesian or the Rousseauan version of history. It's a third way infused, as you say, with, with a kind of anarchism, a new history that the subtitle is a new history yes. of humanity. It's yes. a very bold book. It's a very big book. What is it saying? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it's not, it's not uh, proposing a third way that's, structural, that's, sim that's a similar kind of thing to Hobbes and Rousseau, because it yeah. specifically rejects grand narratives, teleological narratives, narratives of stages of progress. And the whole point is to complicate everything that we think about human history. Which is both the strength and the weakness of the book, because as a number of reviewers are suggesting, it's brilliant, but infuriating because it doesn't present that unified theory. Well, uh, I mean, I think it's infuriating for other reasons. It's kind of a mess. There's a ton of fascinating material. It's not always organized in a linear way. In other words, a lot of digressions, but I mean, to complain about the fact that it doesn't provide a grand narrative, I mean, you can complain about it, but the whole point of the book is that we can't write a grand narrative. And, you know, as I say in the review, one of Graeber's most important sort of values, and he's got a book with this name, was possibilities. That there are many different possibilities for human social organization. Many have been instantiated in human history in ways that are, are not linear, not progressive, uh, and so we can't, the whole point is that there isn't one grand narrative. There are many, many, many possibilities that have played out and by implication that can play out in the future. So, uh, Graeber, as you say, was, was a genius, but he was, um, an anthrop, I guess above all else, an anthropological genius. Uh, David Wengro, the co-author of this book is, a professor of comparative archaeology and also a, a kind of anthropologist uh, at the University College in London. This is, um, it's a complicated book, but it is essentially an anthropological treatment. Is that fair, would you say? I would say that it's an anthropological treatment of the archaeological record. And you can see how the two men's strengths interacted. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Wengrau he says that they was they were right, you know, they spent 10 years on it and, and beyond a certain point they couldn't figure out whose ideas were whose. The book reads mainly like a, a book by David Graeber, his voice, his sensibility, his perspectives, but infused with a tremendous amount of archaeological knowledge, mostly from the last 20 years. I mean, that's another premise of this book, is that we are now just beginning to be able to explore this new history of humanity. Uh, I mean, they write this new history, but they're very clear that this is really just the beginnings of an outline that's just beginning, you know, just beginning to take shape. And really, at this point, what we can do is ask questions and present evidence that complicates the the narrative. But that evidence, the the received narratives, 
but that evidence is archaeological and it's again it's fascinating especially if you don't know this material um all kinds of things that seemed you know i mentioned that sort of stonehenge in turkey but it's like six thousand years before stonehenge and it has these intricate carvings and so it was created by you know hunter gatherers what eight thousand bc or something like that so it's it's but it is above all else well it is extremely erudite it's a polemic it's a polemic against the standard modern unified histories the guns and steel the harari style sapiens and above all else against Pinker. Pinker, i yes. think and, and yes. his approach to history yes what what are graber and wengro saying that is so opposed to the the the, the sapiens Pinker style version of history. That history is not to be understood as a gradual and inevitable and linear um, evolution up a ladder of material and social progress from hunter gatherers to farmers to city dwellers to the modern state. That, as they lay it out, is is the basic paradigm that we get from Hobbes and Rousseau and instantiated in the people now that you just mentioned that you know once we lived in what Rousseau called the state of nature and we were all equal and sort of unconscious you know we weren't sort of conscious political thinkers and then eventually agriculture starts to develop and inevitably we have surpluses of wealth which leads to inequality and uh and also to larger scale uh, settlements which leads to uh social inequality we get kings we get priests blah 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 eventually we get the state emerging in egypt say five thousand years ago and then eventually the modern state and all of this if you're rousseau is a disaster but we can't go back and, and if you're Hobbes, it's essential, even if we don't particularly like him. Exactly, which is why Graeber and Wengro say both of these people are pessimistic in different ways. Uh, we don't have an alternative. What they're really, and, and sort of the question they end up with is, how did we get stuck in this situation that nobody seems to be happy with, but everybody seems to agree we can't get out of? They don't, they don't answer that question. They acknowledge that they don't answer that question. The point of the book is to show that things did not unfold the way we thought it did. they did, inevitably, teleologically. So uh, they talk about societies that were farmers and then decided not to be. So they didn't fall into this grain trap that people talk about. Once you start farming, you know, you sort of can't do anything else. There were societies that were agricultural but didn't develop hierarchy. Cities that preceded agriculture, that's not supposed to happen. Hunter-gatherers who had kings, that's not supposed to happen. Um, and many, many other examples like that. We all uh, dutifully go to places uh, like the Avenue of the Dead outside Mexico City. I was there earlier this year, and of course, Crete, Knossos. Um, what are these guys arguing about Mayan, Mayan civilization, pre-Athenian Greek civilization, these pre-modern I guess what sociologists call traditional society, although I don't think um, uh, Dawn of Everything likes that term. Yeah. Are they suggesting that we can't generalize at all? Are they suggesting that the state didn't exist, that, that these places were in a sense anarchic or anarchists that work, that were viable? No, I, would, I think the first thing they're saying is that we can't generalize. And they mention 
that place whose name I'm not going to pronounce. Yeah, nor me. I mean, if I come to Teotihuacan, I'm not going to have a shot at this one. But this is these Teotihuacan. So this was Mexico City. Right. So the the Mexicans come down. The people who become the Aztecs come down uh, in 1150 to the Valley of Mexico, and they discover this incredible abandoned metropolis that looks like it had, well, like you say, 125,000 or more people. And so archaeology has been working on that for a long time. Graeber and Wengrau talk about it as a way of, uh, they talk about it for, for a particular reason. They talk about Crete for another particular reason in context. You can't generalize. They talk about Teotihuacan because it seems that it was an authoritarian or hierarchical place with palaces and temples. And then at a certain point, he decided, violently or not, to not be that anymore. And they built you know, uh, high-quality public housing for the entire city, suggesting a, a high level of egalitarianism. But that's just an example, right? There are many other examples. Like I said, you know, a hunter-gatherer kingdom in Florida, that was not an egalitarian place. And the truth is they don't even like the word egalitarian that much because it can mean too, too, too many different things. But the point is, uh, A, no generalizations. B, yes, as you suggested, uh, many examples they bring forth did embody uh, elements of, of anarchism, uh, small c communism, anti-authoritarianism, freedoms that they think that we've lost to show that these are viable social models. Right. And, and at the end, they, ironically enough, I guess, because since we're not supposed to rely on the Greeks, they introduce the ancient Greek word kairos, meaning the right critical or opportune moment. And they suggest that we're at that point now, um, or they were at the point when they finished the book a couple of years ago, we're even more at that point now. I wonder, um, what you make of this historical juncture, why this book has caught on. It's currently number 10 on Amazon. It was anyway this morning. Ironically enough, sandwiched between a book by Katie Corich and one by Pete Navarro. Often people just read these kinds of books, I guess, because they're reviewed in the New York Times. But we are at a moment um, when the arguments, the ideas in the dawn of everything resonate. Yes. Is that fair? It's fair. I I think it's absolutely fair. What I don't necessarily know is true, and I just gesture to this at the very end of the review, because, you know, there's so little space to describe this enormous book, is I don't know that it's an opportune moment for us to change our social structures. I mean, Graeber believed that. It's not clear to me that it's going to be very easy. But I do think that the work is resonating because... More and more people want to believe that that's possible. I mean, well, our structures are falling. I mean, you know, Bill, you and I have talked about this before. You've written in in great detail about this, both in the death of the artist, the crisis of our creative community, and above all else, an excellent sheep, the crisis of further education uh, in America. Our traditional institutions are falling apart. We don't know how to replace them. We don't want to become nostalgic and just return. Of course, it's no coincidence that. Graeber was one of the intellectual founders of Occupy Wall Street, which, again, sort of reflects both the strength and the frustrating nature of this book, which had a huge amount of potential, but was hard to sort of tie down. I wonder... Wait, wait, wait. But let me say something. Go on. If I can. Our institutions may be falling apart, but I think people have a sense, it's certainly my sense, 
that politically, I mean, they're not talking about institutions in this book. They're talking about, you know, political structures, how we organize society at the largest level. I mean, it feels immovable. It feels both dysfunctional and immovable. There, there's no alternative. There's no alternative to what we call liberal democracy, but has been so corrupted by corporate interests and, I don't know, scale and, and inertia, um, and no alternative to capitalism as it's also become. That's the thing. I think that's what people feel. Like this is this moment of being stuck, of gridlock. Institutions may be collapsing in the context of that, but uh, that's, that's not the point. The point is, where's the exit door? Where is the exit door? How do we get out of this shit? That's what people, I think, are, are, and especially in the face of looming climate catastrophe, which is we just saw the governments of the world do not seem capable of, of really addressing. Right. and we've That's why I think this book is We've talked about that endlessly on the show, too, of um, Greta Thunberg's blah, blah, blah of governments. And, you know, we have in America two kinds of political leader, either someone who has one foot, maybe even two feet in the grave, Joe Biden, and then Trump, who doesn't really need to be talked about. So clearly the, the politics of this are in crisis. I wonder, Bill, whether to make sense of this, we need to remind ourselves of the, the brewing cult of the indigenous, uh, which I guess is kind of Rousseauan in a way. We've had so many shows on this. We had Matthew Pearl, very good writer, on uh, the Daniel, the sort of rewriting the, the Daniel Pearl myth. We had the New York University um, historian David Stasevage, New History of Democracy, reminding us that we owe many of our principles of democracy to indigenous society. Is there something in the dawn of everything that might spark or reflect a new cult of the indigenous? That may well also be true. And I do mention that in the, in the review. It's one of the most striking things about the book. They talk about what they call the indigenous critique, which was the critique that uh, uh, Native, North America, Native North Americans in you know, Eastern, what's now the Eastern United States and Canada made to their European interlocutors, especially French Jesuits in the 17th century, uh, a, a, a sort of, which, which they, David, uh, Graeber and Wengro say, informed and inspired the Enlightenment. These Jesuits came with their sort of monarchical, Christian, hierarchical society, and the Indians sort of poked holes in, in their arguments and in their values. Um, I think the authors try hard not to be nostalgicists for, for indigenous societies. They certainly don't want to go back to them or to anything, but certainly they do give a lot of fuel to uh, I mean, I hadn't been aware of this indigenous nostalgia, but it doesn't surprise me. I think, quite frankly, it's a permanent feature of Western society since Rousseau. Yeah. And it's probably been exacerbated by all kinds of, you know, sort of reflexively self-hating Westernism, self-hating whiteness, self-hating Americanness, which I think is such garbage. But I mean, it's just so thoughtless. But, but I certainly think that's exacerbated this and we see it in popular culture all over the place. I just watched Dune, God help me. And that's another one, you know, a white messiah coming to an indigenous population and they're so morally superior. Yeah, I so, yeah. suspect that uh, Rousseau would like this book, The Dawn of Everything, a lot more than Hobbes. Um, they remind us of some interesting stories, the story of Helena Valero. Again, I didn't know these stories, but I learned them from this book. 
of uh, a woman in Brazil who was kidnapped by indi the indigen an indigenous Amazonian tribe who didn't want to go back to civilization. I guess they're suggesting, in, in contrast to the sort of the mythology of the, the Daniel Boone narrative, that we're just as happy within indigenous communities as we are in modern societies, and that their argument is that modernity has been a disaster on every front. I mean, Graeber has been saying this, or he said it all his life. He wrote it in debt. Yes. He wrote it in bullshit jobs in a very convincing way. I mean, he's right in a way, isn't he, Bill? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not informed enough to know, and I don't want to fall into that trap. And again, I want to emphasize that indigenous society, according to Graeber and Wengrow, means many different things. But right. certainly the societies, the more sophisticated indigenous societies that the Europeans discovered in the eastern woodlands of North America, uh, you know, the Iroquois and the Wyandotte or, and, you know, the, the, that, that whole area, which actually in the last chapter, right, they come back to this and they say, listen, it's not that these guys were just philosophizing. They were sort of natural gentlemen. It's that there had been a history of uh, oppressive monarchy in North America around 1100, uh, located in what's now East St. Louis, that it collapsed and that it gave birth to this ongoing tradition of political practice and thought that the Jesuits encountered in the 17th century, that these, that these Native Americans had thought about how they wanted to organize society and had a society, yeah, that looked a lot like what David Graeber wants everything to look like, small C communism, no uh, social coercion, freedom to leave, freedom to disobey, uh, and there's no question, I don't think they ever say this explicitly, but there's no question that they, they're saying we were a lot happier then. Again, I'm not going to sign on to that necessarily, but it certainly may be true. However, we're not going back there, right? This is the thing. And one of the things that frustrated me about Graeber's writing, and I read almost all of it that I hadn't already read in preparation for this, is that he never envisions the future that he wants. But there is a place where he explains why he doesn't. The whole point is not for one person like David Graeber to envision the future that we're all going to inhabit. The point is to create situations like the occupiers of Occupy Wall Street, where people can decide together, and this is a key element of anarchism, people decide together on an ongoing basis what they want their society to look like. Again, it's possibility rooted in, in, uh, in freedom. And it's, uh, it's possibility rooted in freedom and informed by anthropology. Uh, there's a really interesting section on the R Romanian anthropologist who they're not keen on because he's an anti-Semite, Messia uh, Eliade, uh, also on um, uh, Bronislav Malinowski's Argonauts of the Western Pacific. This is a book driven by anthropology, it's 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 a new political theory built by around the classics of of anthropology, which is rethinking time, rethinking narrative, um, and, and rethinking, of course, the whole idea of the Enlightenment. I think that's absolutely right. I'm not sure what you mean by rethinking time, but one way they do that, aside from arguing that it's not linear. Right. They call attention. They say, look, we, we always concentrate on, you know, classical Athens and Middle Kingdom Egypt. But there are all these 
uh, proto-periods and pre-periods and interstitial periods that tend to be called dark ages in the way we tend to uh, periodize history in various places. And, and that's where the interesting stuff happens, but we haven't paid attention to them because those places don't produce the giant stone monuments that are the easiest to find, the most magnificent, the things that everybody wants to talk about, the pyramids and the temples and the palaces. But it's in those interstitial periods, which are most of human history in most places, where political developments, uh, the most interesting political developments are happening. That's their claim. It's, it's uh, to borrow, I'm sure someone said this in 1968, it's the cracks in the pavement where the future lies. Um, right. uh, as Leonard Cohen said, yeah. maybe, yeah, you know, the Beneath crack the pavement where the, the light beach. happens. Right. Finally, Bill, you and I have talked a lot in the past about technology. They do talk about technology. They're not great fans of technology, certainly of Silicon Valley. But it doesn't seem to me to be a coincidence that the ideas that are being articulated in the dawn of everything, which has this kind of intellectual currency, is very fashionable, as you say, because we can't think of anything else, is also being articulated now in Silicon Valley in what's known as Web 3.0, this distributed platform uh, reflected by hmm. Bitcoin and, 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 and other yeah, yeah. non-centralized uh, technologies, peer-to-peer uh, -peer technologies. Do you think that's coincidental or does that really reflect how history works in ways that we can't really explain, but uh, everything seems to come together? It's possible. I mean, you know, they've been working on the book for 10 years. Graeber's thought has been infused with these ideas for, you know, decades, had been for decades. Uh, you know, maybe this is one of the ways that, you know, intellectual history rhymes. It's certainly, it's certainly possible. Um, this, the, I honestly hadn't heard of Web 3.0. My immediate, my immediate reaction is to be slightly skeptical that it's actually a thing. But I will well, Bitcoin's say, a thing, and what you have are say distributed yeah. currencies challenging the authority of the central bank. Central banks being okay. the core economic reality of states, which is what Graeber is so critical of. So I don't think it's this is not just a footnote. Okay. I mean, fair something enough. There. I guess okay, fair enough. I, I guess I meant is it a, is it really going to be the thing that people think it's going to be? But but leaving aside the fact that it is a thing. It is true that it is now a name that I hadn't heard until five seconds ago, which suggests that um, th the fact that it's named, right, the fact that people are now talking about it and wanting to talk about it, that clearly seems to derive from the same moment that's made this book a bestseller. Not necessarily the moment that produced the book, but the moment that's received the book. Exactly I mean, in the way that you're talking about. Book. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely worth reading. The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, which um, uh, uh, Bill uh, reviewed so in, in such an interesting uh, piece in The Atlantic. Bill, what else? Uh, you're in uh, Portland. You told me you only riot at the weekend. So during the week, you can read some books. What else are you reading? You know, I've been reading uh, mid-century, uh, mid-20th century fiction, authors who I've never had a chance to get to. Mary McCarthy, The Company She Keeps, her first book, it's fantastic. Uh, Christopher Isherwood, uh, Goodbye to Berlin, you know, mm -hmm. where we got uh, Sally Bowles and Cabaret from. So that's some of the stuff I've been reading. I, I, I kind of, I'm getting so tired of just, you know, surfing the day's opinions that I've been more interested in reading, uh, you know, older stuff and more solid stuff. 
uh, and more imaginative stuff. Well, I think the reason, Bill, you, you, you wrote such a good review is because you're out of the mainstream too. I think the thing about uh, uh, Graeber in particular is he came from nowhere and he went, he, he didn't fit into any tradition. He was entirely independent, which is probably why he didn't get tenure at Yale, which I think was probably to his benefit. Ultimately, ultimately, absolutely. Uh, maybe he would have lived longer had he stayed in Yale. But I think the fact that he he never fitted in anywhere reflects the brilliance and the originality of this book, The Dawn of Everything. It's must read. Your review, Bill, is also a must read. Keep well, Bill. We need Thank you, you. Okay. to uh, to be thinking independently. And we'll talk again, uh, either sure. about a new book from you or, or one of your excellent reviews. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network. Uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.